Welcome to Trilor Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the United States. We simply have great lawyers, tell great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. So let's get started. I'm very glad and honored to be sitting with Jim Brown. Jim is an excellent human being who's authentic and real and wickedly talented. Jim, thanks for being with us. Yes, Scott, thank you. We've been talking about this for a while, and it's, it's really my pleasure to be here. I've been a big fan of your podcast, and to be included is really exciting. Jim, can you share with us a story of a case that had a profound impact on you? Sure. There's, there's a lot of them, like with a, most of the other folks that you've talked to, but there's one that really is important to me as a human being and as someone who has uh, been involved with the trial lawyers college for a while. And it's exciting. And, and it was, it really showed me how significant what we do is. And what it did, it involved a uh, uh, sex abuse case that I tried um, a little while back now. And, and it was a young man, his name was Brandon, that's public record, so there's no point in but uh, it was Brandon Doe. And he was a enrollee, 13 years old, at a child adolescent, um, that's what they called it, a drug and uh, alcohol rehabilitation facility down in San Diego. And this uh, company would bring in and require these children to have AA sponsors. And Brandon would uh, go to different facilities, AA facilities around San Diego and PB in different areas and try to find a sponsor, but he didn't care for any of them because they were all old. They were all alcoholics. He couldn't identify with any of them. And he used a particular descriptive, descriptive term as to why he didn't want to be around any of them. So this rehabilitation facility. What was the term? Well, I don't know. I don't want to publish that right now. It's, it's, it wasn't really flattering, but uh, it, it was powerful to him in the sense of, of the way that he would express it. And so they, uh, this rehabilitation facility had what they called volunteers that uh, were uh, individuals that had uh, participated in AA and drug and alcohol rehabilitation uh, programs. And they really built this man up. They, you know, told him, this is the guy. He's the one who can do it for you. He's got a lot of experience. He's worked with some of our other, you know, children here, and, and he'll be a great person for you. Well, they didn't tell him a lot of things about this man that, that if they'd have been paying attention, they would have known about. For One of them, which was real significant for us, you know, learning about the case was that he had choices of being involved in an adult alcohol rehabilitation or drug rehabilitation facilities or children and he always chose the children facilities and learning about this you you come to understand that these people predators go to where the kids are doesn't make any difference if it's a school or rehabilitation facility or a playground or wherever they they search out little kids so he developed a very close relationship with Brandon where he would actually push 
it got to the point where he was pushing Brandon's parents away and isolating uh, Brandon from his parents. And the parents would go to the facility and say, something's not right here. And they got accused of being helicopter parents to stay out of it, that the facility were the professionals and they had a lot of trust in this man and, and the parents need to just pay the money for the program and go about their business and let, let, the, let the pros do what the pros do. But it continued. And it came to light, um, this man got arrested. He had, he had abused another child and, and the, uh, the police found out about it set him up with a, a call and, and, um, and with the young boy that he had abused, and uh, they ended up arresting him. But they went and they interviewed Brandon about this, and Brandon denied all of it. He said he never touched me, never had anything to do with me. He was my best friend. He was a better person to me than my father was. And um, it, was a very, it became a very difficult case because that's obviously what they were using as a defense on the case, that the man never touched him. But we come to find out that uh, you know Brandon didn't get better, and they, uh, his parents finally shipped him out to a drug and rehabilitation uh, program out in Utah. And he described for us, and I had him, I had him do two things in trial. One of them was to describe that moment when he was in a tent by himself out in the middle of nowhere in his drug program in Utah, where he finally had the realization of what was going on. And and he described that, and, and uh, we brought him to the scene, put him in the tent, and uh, had him describe it while he's laying there on the cot. And, and, um, and uh, he was very emotional about it and, and described that he just lost it. He just became confused, frightened, vomiting, you know, couldn't get out of that cot for like three days when he realized what, what had happened with this. And, and we, we talked with him about that for a little bit because he, he felt safe talking about that because there wasn't any accusations being made. It was just a realization of the grooming that he had been subjected to, the separation from his parents, the starting of touching, you know, uh, the showers, but there was, you know, not any sexual touching that we were able to figure out yet. And... So where we got involved um, in the, the most, this is still to this day, and I bet probably for the, the, my career, the most powerful moment I've ever had in a courtroom, uh, we had Brandon's father testify before Brandon was on the stand, and he described uh, a history with this, who we ultimately found out was a pedophile, and, and uh, his efforts to try to get the facility to do something about it. And, and he described driving down they lived in a cul-de-sac and it was pitch black down there and i had been there i'd been over to the house many many times talking to brandon and his father described himself driving home one evening and seeing the the sponsor the aa sponsor through the through the program seeing his car down at the end of the cul-de-sac and he drove down and he flashed his brights and he saw what he believed to be his son in a very compromising situation position with this man and he asked pulled up asked him what's going on and his son denied it brandon said nothing nothing dad get out of here you know everything's fine so he described that scene for us in the courtroom and then we had brandon testify to the you know, the issue that i just talked about the the tent situation and scene and then i i brought him to that cul-de-sac and I asked him if he talked to his father before 
you know, Brandon came in to testify, and he said, no, I hadn't talked with him. And, and I, I told him where I wanted to go, and I said, well, your father described a situation that he felt that, you know, that, that there was maybe something compromising going on uh, in this car when he came home that night. And I said, this boy looked at me. He was 17 at the time when this was going on now. Uh, in the courtroom, and he looked at me, and his eyes just got incredibly large. I mean, just, and I, and I asked him, um, Brandon, can I talk to you about that? And he just sat there and just started crying and cried and cried and cried for like five minutes. He just cried, and I just stood there. And the judge started crying, and the judge handed him tissues to help him to stop crying and nobody moved nobody said a word the power of that moment and the and the hopelessness that was in that little boy at that time was just it was devastating for everybody in that room and and I, I, it's something that I'll never forget and he finally stopped crying the judge even asked if he wanted to take a break, and he said no. And, and then he looked at me, and he looked at everybody in that courtroom, and he said, no, I'm not talking about it. And I said, fine, and I respected it and left it. And I turned it over to the defense attorney to cross-examine him at that point in time. But where, where it's important on this, Scott, is it was the, to me anyway, the power of it was incredible. But... It was through the skills that I've learned at the trial lawyers college that got me there. I mean, I spent an enormous amount of time with Brandon earning his trust and, and talking with him about trust and, and how we needed to work together with this. And, and if he would talk with me, I would never violate his trust. And if he didn't want to go somewhere, I, I promised him that I would never, ever make him say something or do something that he didn't want to talk about or go to an area that he wasn't comfortable with. And he thanked me for respecting that after he got done testifying because he really believed in me. And the only way he was going to believe in me was for me to do everything that we learn out here at the college to gain his trust and to create that bond with him where I knew and he knew that we were going to be acting together in that courtroom and, and getting done what we needed to get done. And like I said, it was the most powerful moment I've ever had in, in a courtroom. And in closing, what it allowed me to do, I didn't even have to say anything because all I talked to the jury about when I was done is that is what they felt and what they saw. And I told them, you know, you you saw his truth, and you felt his truth. You know, you saw his loss, and you felt his loss. And and I didn't have to say anything else. I mean, because it was there, and everybody knew what happened. Everybody knew likely what was going to happen, and they came back, you know, after not a not a tremendously long period of time, but they came back with a very nice judgment for him, nice verdict, and and it validated him. And and I talked with him about, you know, about eight months ago. I, I talked with him, and he said he's doing really, really well. He's in counseling. You know, he's 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 coming a long way. He's got a girlfriend now. He's growing up. He's maturing into a you know very 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 wonderful person, and and I feel grateful for all that. And I feel really grateful that I was able to help him and get this done. Jim, the sensitivity that you showed him, which is evident to everybody who's listening to this, 
what journey did you have to get to the place where you could allow him the, the, the space and show him the sensitivity to be present with him? Because that shows a lot of... You know, that's a great question. Um, the best way I can answer that, Scott, is just to, to say it took time. You know, and it, it took going to meals. It took, you know, everything that, that we know to do. Um, and, and for me personally, to, to get to a point where I was going to have, a, um, at that time, a 17-year-old boy talk about things that were happening to him when he was 13 years old, um, the pain that I would see in him is something that I was able to, to relate to on different levels, not the same level that he had. Um, because there were different circumstances, but he and I were able to connect on different levels, and, and I was able to share with him some some things in my life that were very important and very painful and very difficult to talk about, and and letting him know it was okay to do that. It was okay to talk to another person about these things, and and to get him prepared for that. And the only way. I could get him prepared for that as I had to get to that same painful area where he was so I could understand how to talk with him. And even more important, I would understand when to stop. Can I ask you about your connection to it, to the pain? Well, it, there's, there's things that happen to us all throughout our lives, you know, that, that things that we see and things that we do. I mean, I'm not all that uncomfortable talking about, you know, some of the things that have happened to me, but... Uh, right here, right now. Um, but, you know, we all have our dramas. We all have, you know, things that happen and things that we've seen. And, and the things that, that I was sharing with him were things that I had seen and, and had no control over um, that were as shocking as anything that anybody, any human being would ever want to see and not want to see, really. Um, and, and the pain that it caused in me um, was evident to him. And was it personal? It, not quite as personal as, as his pain, but I didn't have that same experience and I didn't want to belittle him and, and the pain that he had and the experience that he had by trying to share something that might have happened to me that wasn't on that same level. And I didn't think that that was going to be helpful. And, and I thought it was best to, to talk about things that I knew that had happened, things that I had seen and things that, that I couldn't prevent, but things that, that I, I was able to talk with him about that helped him understand that, that it's okay to talk about people, you know, and things that are painful and things, you know, to, to develop trust with him. Because the people that, that I was involved in, the people that I saw these things happening with when I was there, they trusted me. So it, I hope I'm answering your question. I'm not sure that I am, but because it, 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 was, it was hard to get there. What did you learn through this, through this case and through Brandon? About Brandon or myself? Anything. Either. Okay. Well... The case, these types of cases are incredibly, incredibly difficult and they're very emotional. They're, you learn uh, about these children and, uh, you know, adults that this happens to, that this is not a fleeting moment. I mean, this is something that affects them 
through all stages of their lives. And you talk to some of the professionals that are involved and they're still counseling people that are 70, 80 years old that have been exposed and had things like this happen to them and it just doesn't go away. And, and there's no place for them to put it. You know, there's no pocket that they can put it into. Or there's no part of their body that they can put it into and, and act like it never happened. You know, there's no, there's no key they can lock it away with. It's just always there with them. And, and, and it affects them in all their relationships. It affects them with their children because they become overprotective. The, you know, is, won't let them out of their sight. You know, just they become controlling. They become incredibly worried. It affects them in their relationships with husbands or wives down the, you know, out in the future. It's, it's just a horrible, horrible thing that I don't think it's talked about enough to where people understand just how significant and how, how hard this is. With Brandon, the way it affected me was I've, I've never had anybody that I thought was as courageous as him to walk into a room not blaming anybody. He didn't blame anybody. He just shared. And he shared only what I told him I would let him share in the sense of we won't go past where you want to go. And he just told a very quick story and, and shared those moments that were incredibly powerful to him. You know, the realization and then telling me don't go there. And his growth from that is is been just remarkable because he's a hell of a kid. I mean, he's just, a, you know, he's not a kid anymore. He's, you know, he's older, but he's just such a powerful person. And, and I think that the, I think the verdict had a lot to do with that because it, it let him understand that he didn't do anything, that he was, oh, that he was okay. And people realized the journey that he'd been on and realized the harm that had been caused to him and were doing anything that they could to try to help him and to protect him as a child. And, and his growth out of that, I saw a completely different person. I saw someone that was confident, that, were, that was comfortable. And I'm talking about a kid that when he was in school and some of the kids in school heard about this would just abuse him and say, hey, you know, you were with the pedophile, you know, what did you do? And just accusing him of all these things that, you know, people's minds wander to. And, and I never even asked him. I never once asked him what happened because it wasn't, it wasn't something that I needed to know. You know, just his story was enough and his emotions were enough. And, and as I started to say a minute ago, the, the power that he has now over that helplessness and that pain and that loss was really made me feel wonderful because it, he's doing what he can to live his own life now. And he's, and he's, I think he's got control over it, Scott. I mean, I really do. And me, what did I get out of it? I, I got that. that I'm, I think I'm a better person for having done it. I think I'm a better person for having been able to connect with a, a young man that was nowhere near my age, that's younger than my own children, and, and have him trust me and, and create a bond with that child that nobody else had. I mean, his parents didn't have the same connection with him that I did. 
and 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 to realize that that I was able to do that and create that relationship with this young man where he trusted me and knew that you know that I wasn't going to hurt him and that I was going to respect him which is all he wanted it makes me a better person and and it it proved to me that what we do as lawyers and what we learn out here at the ranch and what we teach out here at the ranch is you know you can't say enough good things about it because if I hadn't have done the things and done the work that we that we teach out here I'm not so sure I'd ever gotten there with him. You must feel vulnerable yourself working on cases with abused children. I mean, that's a heavy load to carry. How do you deal with that? Well, you ask great questions. Uh, You know, I, I don't know... The only way I can deal with it is get to know them. You know, if I get to know them, then I get to understand them, and they get to understand me. And then it's not a, um, they're not victims to me. They're friends. And, and I don't mean that lightly, and I don't mean it, you know, to throw out the word friend, you know, but 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 they do. They, they trust me, and, and I've seen... You know, especially with Brandon, seeing him later on. I mean, it, it was just a, a really good meeting and really good conversation, and, 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 and it was warm. But you deal with it, I deal with it by learning about them and, and being their friend and being them for them. And I can't tell you the amount of times I keep talking about Brandon, but I can't tell you the amount of times I just sat with him and nobody talked about anything except shooting the breeze, you know, just shooting stories about things that had nothing to do with anything, but just just getting to know each other on, on a certain level. And it wasn't forced. He never said no. He never didn't never said he didn't want to get together. So I knew that that it was working and, and it created a you know paternal instinct in me too to protect and and, and to help and, and to do the things that I, I that I wanted to do. So that's how I deal with it. And then if it works out great then and it makes you feel good about what you've done. You know, there's, there's a, there is truth at the, at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And if you can get that truth out and people recognize the truth and, truth and accept the truth, then I also feel accepted because I'm the conduit there. I'm the, everything flows through, through us, right? And if I've done that and, and I've had the jury connect with, you know, then that's how I deal with it. And this may be a bit of an esoteric question, but in Brandon's case, what was your approach to the jury? What was your just feeling about building a relationship or, or whatever you were looking for? Well, I, I, I don't think it's esoteric at all. I, I had a huge realization. I tried a, um, um, a murder case a long time ago, and it involved a boyfriend. Uh, the The girlfriend had a young daughter, and and uh, the the daughter ended up, you know, um, in the morgue. And they charged the the boyfriend, and and I was hired to to represent the boyfriend. Now, you know, that's a completely different case and a completely different issue. Um, but what I learned from that is a jury 
like all of us, especially if we're parents, will do anything they can to protect a child and, and to help a child. And in that murder case, that was a, a huge part of my voir dire was, you know, how are we going to deal with this? I mean, we all want somebody to pay for this child having, having passed away. And, and we need to, we need to be able to talk about this. And so I took what I learned from that about, I don't want to use the word, the extremes that people will go to, but if you've ever loved a child or had a child, you know that that's just human instinct is to protect that child and make things right for that child. And that's something that I've learned that with a jury, it's not a, a huge leap to get them to understand that who they're talking to now might be 18, 19, 20 you know, years old or so forth. But when this was going on with them, they were children. They were 10, 12, 13 years old. And they had no power. They had no control. They don't understand what's going on. They have no ability to comprehend the evil that exists out there. And when a jury understands all of that, they'll help. And, and they'll feel good about helping. And, and that's why I said, I, you know, not to repeat it, but I, well, I guess I will repeat it. I, I didn't have to, to make a big closing argument. All I had to tell them is remind them what they saw. You know, and they saw his pain, they saw his loss, and they saw his truth. And for them to have seen all of that, they had to have felt all of that. And that's all I told them. You saw it, and you had to have, feel, you had to have felt it. So what are we going to do about it? You know, it, it, and, and it's, it's a, it was a wonderful charge, you know, for them. And, and they did something. They did the right thing about it. So... People will do what they need to do to protect a child, Scott. I, I just know that. And I can sense your trust in the jury. We have to. Say more about that. That's who we have to look to. You know, we're, we're there. We have to look to someone else to... to to resolve this. I mean, I can't resolve it. If I could, we wouldn't be in the courtroom. The defense attorney has got an interest not to resolve it, you know, because they're going to plaster whatever they want to plaster against the wall for not just a, you know, a child, but for anybody. We've all seen it. So we have to be there with a trust with the jury and respect a jury and talk to the jury like we, like we care for them and, and we're concerned about them. and, and and, and we want them to do the right thing and then give them the information that they need in order to do the right thing. So we, we have to be there with them. They're there to resolve this for us. And if we don't show them the love and respect that we want anybody to show us, it, it, it would create a problem, I think. Jim, what advice do you have for young lawyers out there who want to become great trial lawyers? Try your cases. Just try them. Focus them. Go talk to every, every lawyer you can talk to about them. Get help, get advice. Come to the trial lawyers college. You know, come to the local meetings that we have everywhere. Go to the courthouse. One thing that I did before, you know, I even heard about it, long before the trial orders college was even in existence, 
I would find out in, in San Diego, you know, we all knew who the trial lawyers were, and, and I would go down and watch them try cases. And it was wonderful to watch them try cases. It was, and most of them were such great people that when, when they were done, in fact, they'd come out. I, I, I talked to a couple of them right after they, they gave an opening statement. I'd ask them, well, why did you say that? And they would take the time right then and there to tell me why that they did it this way. So I think that younger lawyers will find out that the, the lawyers that have been there for a period of time are happy to share with them the things that they learned. And, and one of the best pieces of advice I ever got uh, from a very good friend of mine because I was like everybody else, and, and to some extent still this way when I go into a courtroom. I'm scared. I don't know what to say. I don't know how I'm going to get you know, the words to say what needs to be said in a courtroom to get done what we all hoping is going to happen. And my friend told me, he said, listen, you, you need to stop. And he said, most every word that you can ever imagine has already been said in a courtroom. He said, so quit beating yourself up trying to come up with new ways, new things, new things to say. If you've come up with one, God bless you. But he said, go to the shoulders, you know, stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before you. Learn what they learned, learn what they know, and then try your cases. And, and I did that, and, and I've done that. I mean, I don't try any case now without bugging everybody. You know, about what do you think of this? How, how would you go about this? What do you think? How are we going to, you know, what do, what do you help? You know, what do you think is the best way I can go about doing this? And focusing them, going to local meetings and, and you know, talking about them, reenacting scenes, doing all these things to help. So it's a lot of work. And many lawyers out there, well, probably most every lawyer I know, deals with fear and what advice do you have for lawyers who feel like down deep inside that they're not good enough that they're not experienced enough or that that they're afraid they're going to fail well maybe they do fail you know we've all failed um but you are good enough Everybody's good enough. And if you show the trust in people and you show the love for people that you're supposed to have, not as a lawyer so much, but just as a human being, and you go talk to people as a human being, you go talk to and you just connect with people without all the legalese and, and all the big words and, and all the puffed up chests, and you know, then people relate to you. And, and they'll want to talk with you, and they'll be receptive to the message that you've got. And if you've got a good message, then people are going to listen to you. So I, I believe anybody can do it. I really do. Well, Jim, thank you for, so much for sharing your wisdom and your wonderful story. You've provided tremendous insights and wisdom. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.
www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.